The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. What is the relationship between dreams and NDEs? Can a person dream a shared NDE even before a loved one dies? And what does this say about our ability to step out of time to experience another person's future? Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. In this program, I want to tell you the story of Mary and David. Mary wrote it, and it appeared in the spring 2010 issue of IANS quarterly publication, Vital Signs, which goes free to all the, uh, all the members of IANS. The story demonstrates a fascinating mix of the elements of dreamed premonition, shared afterlife experience, the power of prayer, and the connections love can manifest between two people. The story is titled, I Thought It Was a Dream. Mary writes, On our first date in 19, early 1978, David told me of a Caribbean adventure he had planned for January, February of 1979. He and five others would travel to the moorings in Tortola, part of the British Virgin Islands, and charter a yacht for a two-week exploration of the neighboring islands. Since David had crewed such yachts twice before, both times without incident, the charter company would permit him to captain the ship himself. His companions would be his crew. In the fall of 1978, David asked me if I would come with him uh, on the cruise. By that time, we were discussing marriage, and I accepted the invitation without hesitation. A week before our departure, I began to have difficulty getting to sleep. I had no ready explanation for my difficulty. Work was going well, and we were both looking forward to this long-planned Caribbean adventure. I could not understand why I would toss and turn for a couple of hours before dropping off, exhausted. This was new and strange. Sleep had not been a problem for me before. David said if he, he was having trouble sleeping as well and that it didn't feel to him like a normal trip excitement. Our dreaming difficulties began on the Sunday night before our departure. Monday night, I'd gone to bed at 11 p.m., but was still awake at 1.30 a.m., tossing and turning in bed and crying with racking sobs that left my midsection cramped and sore. What I felt was an intense anguish, but with no focus, no reason. At least I couldn't think of any explanation. I began to wonder if I was losing my mind, though the unfocused dysphoria lasted for a shorter period each night since... I applied the remedy sooner on each succeeding night. This remedy worked as well as any sleeping pill. I have no conscious idea how it occurred to me to try the Lord's Prayer, since I did not habitually pray out loud and did not pray in words written out by others. But that first Monday night I prayed out loud while lying awake, for some reason repeating the Lord's Prayer over and over, but only after a couple of hours of struggling on my own. I wondered often during those first three days of the week before our departure about why I was suddenly saying the Lord's Prayer as I lay sleepless and crying. 
I also wondered why I was saying the words out loud. Maybe there was something in the prayer I needed to slow down and truly hear. On the other hand, I thought, this could be further indication that I was cracking up in some way, along with the inexplicable sobbing and anguish. The Lord's Prayer worked for whatever reason. At some point in my anguished sleeplessness, I would think of that prayer and say a veritable litany of our fathers. Each time I finished the prayer, I would repeat one phrase over and over aloud. Thy will be done. Sleep usually came after just a few moments. I told David that something was wrong, but that I had no idea what it was. We wondered if I might be having some anxiety about the trip or or about our relationship. We thought and talked about that during the week, however, without coming up with anything that made sense to us. I did not tell David about the bizarre routine I had gone through before finally going to sleep on Monday and Tuesday evenings, tossing in anguish, sobbing for a couple of hours. The repetitions of Thy will be done. It all seemed too weird to tell him, especially in light of his negative attitude toward religion. If I had ever thought that I confused religion with spirituality, my difficulty with the two concepts was put into perspective by David's seeming fusion of them. Anytime the topic of God or any concept of a higher power came up, David would respond with strong negative statements about the destructiveness, hatred, and wars triggered by organized religions over the centuries. Ironically, David was invariably the one who would bring the topic up. He would say something cynical or even sarcastic about religion or about the illogicality of the concept of God. I would respond by telling him about a spiritual experience that I'd had, expecting more argument. But at that point, hearing me out and encouraging me to tell more details of whatever experience I was describing, David would fall silent. It was years before the obvious occurred to me. He brought up the topic of religion as a way to hear more about my spiritual experiences. After David died, his dear friend Maddie told me that David had had something like a near-death experience when he was hospitalized a couple of years before. He had developed an embolism after surgery and had been clinically dead for a couple of minutes. When he was revived, he told Marty there had been a light and that there was definitely something there. Then he clammed up on the topic with Marty, refusing to discuss it again. During the almost year that we were together, David told me nothing of his experience. He seemed to be stuck in an angry agnostic position spiritually. On Tuesday, after I told David that I was in turmoil for some reason and feeling shaky, David tried to help, working with the little that I had told him about my sleep difficulty the night before. Sitting next to me, close on our sofa, his arm around my shoulder, his leg warming mine, David asked, What's the worst thing you can imagine happening on this trip? I considered. It's my first time out of the country. Maybe I'm worried about getting lost or being abandoned, I said. Okay, he replied, and and then what would you do? Find my way home. I have a passport, a credit card. I'm an adult, I admitted. David smiled. 
and we would meet up again in Pittsburgh. I smiled as well, trying to reassure him. I never told him about the sobbing or the extent of the anguish before sleep or the ritual with the Lord's Prayer. David added, I just want you to know that everything will be all right, that nothing can go wrong. He said this with such certainty that when I encountered the writings of Julian of Norwich years later, I thought of David's shirt he reflected in her writing, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Tuesday night was no better. However, agitation, misery, and sobbing. Finally, I stopped debating whatever process was happening in my psyche and began saying the the Lord's Prayer aloud, repeating, Thy will be done. Many times, out loud. Again, I drifted off to sleep within moments. By Wednesday night, I began the prayer ritual as soon as I lay down in bed and went to sleep quickly. On Thursday morning, almost three days before David died of his first massive heart attack, I was still lying in bed in the twilight stage of consciousness, halfway between sleep and waking, when I had the following experience. At the time, I guessed it was part vivid dream, part waking fantasy. Whatever the experience was, it was real enough to have a profound effect on my emotional state. David and I had both died in some kind of accident. We suddenly found ourselves outside of our bodies. We were above our bodies, hovering in the air. David was confused and disoriented. He looked around in dismay. Because of his doubts about any afterlife, he didn't know what was happening. I took his hand and began to explain that we had both died and that we were out of our bodies and that we had to go on. I took his right hand and my left hand and we started off. I had the sense that he did not yet understand what I was talking about, but that he trusted me. Throughout the dream, David preceded me and yet was clearly the guide. He was silent throughout. I did all the talking nonstop, describing over and over what had happened, where we were, and where we were going. David walked a step ahead of me, reaching his right hand back to clasp my left hand. We proceeded that way through a place, I can't recall it now, and then into a large tunnel. I kept up a running commentary telling him what was happening and where we were supposed to, what we were supposed to do. I said things like, we'll probably come to a tunnel of some sort. Okay, here's the tunnel. We're supposed to go through it. There will be a light and that's where we're going. I talked constantly to him, but he never said a word nor let go of my hand or look back at me while we walked through the tunnel. The tunnel was large perhaps uh, 40 feet in diameter. did not seem long, though, after only a brief walk, we reached the end. There we stood, pausing for a moment. In front of us was a door, a beautifully carved wooden double door, like the gigantic doors of medieval cathedrals in Europe. The door soared above our heads. I couldn't make out much detail of the wall around the door, though. We could see that there was a powerful light source behind the door. The light was so strong that it streamed through some small cracks in the wood around the edges of the door frame. 
and through the slight opening in the middle. I had no emotional feelings from the light. I knew the reason. It was not my time yet to be with the light. David did not let go of my hand as he turned to look at me with a questioning expression. With my right arm extended, I pointed to the door. I nodded. That was where he was supposed to go. His expression changed then to to one of farewell. He understood now. We were both very happy, happier than we had ever been before. We squeezed each other's hand and simply grinned at each other. I was silent. There was no need for any more words. David still did not speak. He just grinned and squeezed my hand in farewell. He was happier than I'd ever seen him. Then he released my hand, turned away from me, and started walking toward the door. I watched his back as David took the first few confident steps toward the door, streaming through with light. I knew he would be all right. I have to go back and be revived, I thought, in a matter-of-fact way. It, It isn't my time yet. I woke up, suddenly and completely alert, awake, still feeling the dream's happiness and baffled. What kind of dream was that to feel happy about? David dead? What could be the latent content of that dream or twilight sleep stage fantasy that I should now feel so happy and content? I am a psychologist. My first trained reaction to any inexplicable experience was then to psychologize it. At that time in my life, I was just beginning the process of realization that the universe validated other ways of knowing than the hardline empirical data-gathering scientific method I had been so inculcated with in graduate school. I speculated, therefore, that the dream represented my hopes that David would someday believe in God. I let it go at that time for the same for the time for the time being and got my work day started. I thought no more about the dream consciously until David died about 90 hours later. I did not even think about or question the fact that my agitation and misery had stopped from that moment of waking Thursday morning. I was simply relieved that it, that it had and spent our last day at 3 days in Pittsburgh on final preparation for the trip. On the next 3 nights, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I slept like a stone, falling easily into immediate dreamless slumber. Each morning I woke up refreshed and thinking happily about our Caribbean adventure. On the last Sunday in January, we arrived in Tortola, BVI, with two other couples. Tortola, in late afternoon, the sun was still shining, the air warm. We swam in the moorings pool, checked out the yacht we were to board in the next in the next day, and dined with our companions before going to sleep around 11 p.m. My hair was moving, a touch pulling me out of sleep, again insistent. David lay next to me, tugging the corner of my pillow. He had pulled it half off my head. I, I propped up on my elbows, wearing the pillow now like a cockeyed hat. Is it morning? I mumbled already. I thought, still half asleep. The window of our room was dark. Not morning yet. Uh, Then what? David glanced at his watch, barely moving his left arm to look at it. 
No, it's one thirty, he said. He he slipped from a he sipped from a plastic cup of water. One slow sip. No expression on his face. He'd gotten up for water rather than gone to sleep. Now I was fully awake. I sat up in the bed and threw the sheet off. What is it? I tried to keep my voice calm, but I could feel my heart beating in my throat, not knowing why. David was calm. I have some discomfort in my left arm and across my chest, he said. He gave no sign of pain, however, except for the blank expression on his face. Help, I thought. Get help. I rose to my knees and backed off the bed, not wanting to take my eyes from him, as I moved fast backward toward the door. No phones in any of the rooms. Stu. Stu's a psychiatrist. He has an M.D. He and his wife are in the next room. The world sped up. David could see my alarm. Now I remember, he said in calm, slow voice. We went swimming before dinner, and that was the first exercise I'd had in quite a while. I looked directly into his eyes as I paused in my backward movement on that huge bed that seemed to have no bottom. I shared the thought, if not the pain that had kept him awake. Heart attack. His watch read 1.30 a.m. I'd gone to sleep about 11.30 p.m. David had been with this pain for more than two hours before waking me. Denial. I have some pain in my right arm as well, he added. Less. He put the plastic tumbler down on the bedside table carefully, as if it were fragile and might break, or as if he were fighting pain. He must have turned the light back on after we went to sleep. Half asleep, I had probably pulled the pillow over my head to block out the light while David filled that bedside tumbler with water. I glanced at it, almost empty. My thoughts were racing. Maybe it was the swimming, I said, and, and, and your right arm is stronger than your left arm, so maybe you strained the left arm more. I spoke very fast, as if needing to fill a complex argument into the span of a minute waltz while simultaneously crawling backward off the bottom of the bed. I felt for my footing rather than turning around, not wanting to look away from David's face. I took a couple of steps backward toward the door. I chattered on. There was a persuasion job to do. David never wanted to see a doctor about anything. Later, I wondered if David would have invited Stu on the charter if he'd been a cardiologist. Probably not. Denial takes work to maintain, and the presence of a cardiologist would have turned this vacation into work for David. He must have felt symptoms. All those antacid tablets in the medicine cabinet. I kept talking, backing toward the door, keeping my eyes on David, trying to visualize the room we dumped our bags into before heading to the pool, and then dinner, only a few hours before. Wouldn't it be more reassuring to hear that from Stu that it's just a muscle strain? David nodded. He looked away from me, defeat clouding his expression. I reached around for the doorknob. Faintly, I heard him sigh. He did not want to admit it, I thought, but the sigh told me he was agreeing, giving up the fight. It was time to call a doctor, even if the only one available was a psychiatrist. 
Describe the chest pain in more detail, I said, fumbling for the doorknob, still staring at his face. No eye contact now. Calm. As calm as I can be. Even though he won't look at me anymore. Keep him talking. If we're calm, nothing will happen that Stu can't deal with. I would tell Stu those details while pounding on his door. While Stu woke up and threw a robe on, I could yell the information to him through the closed door and save a few seconds. Speak, David. Tell me. My mind was racing with a horrible sense of urgency. I could not have been awake for even a full minute, and yet it felt that much more time had passed. David began a gesture, his right hand moving toward the left side of his chest, as if to show me where the pain was located. Then he stared straight ahead, at the wall opposite our bed, and nothing I could see. Time slowed down. The smell of salt and fish filled the air, coming in through the open veranda window that fronted the marina. David's arms drew up, his hands and tight fists crossed close against his chest. He seemed either to try to breathe or to breathe deeply. I could not tell which it was. Just once. I ran back to him, to to his side of the bed, and touched his face. David, no response. He stared straight right through me with his eyes wide open. David, David, I shouted his name. No response. His arms were folded across his chest. His hand hands still tightly tightly fisted as if he were trying to contain an awful pain. His whole body trembled on the bed. I ran from the room and pounded on the next door. Stu, come quick, I shouted. It's David, come quick. Stu answered immediately. I'm coming, he called through the door. Maybe I'd already woken him up when I had shouted to David. I didn't wait. I ran back, leaving our door open. No change in David. Still the staring the crossed arms and fists. I touched his face and felt helpless. His eyes were huge and dark. Though I stared into his eyes, there was no contact. His body still trembled. Stu took my place at the edge of the bed, took David's wrist in his left hand and slapped slapped David twice across the face, hard. David, wake up, David, he said, almost yelling at David's face. I was astonished. Why is he saying that? I wondered. David is awake. His his eyes are open. Stu turned to me and said, My God, I think he's dead, in a soft, flattened voice. No, this cannot be. My mind fastened on his qualifier. Think. Stu only thinks he's dead. Psychiatrist. What does he know about the body? Should I get an ambulance, I asked, backing again toward the door. Maybe a, a special heart team, I thought. Stu nodded, frowning at David. I heard Stu's sigh from across the room. I took the stairs to the lower level, two at a time, and ran through the darkened hotel grounds almost to the main area, envisioning Stu giving CPR to David at the same time. Halfway across the compound, I almost ran into a young Tortolan, a teenager wearing a T-shirt with the Moorings logo embroidered thickly on the front, the night security guard. He stared, gate-mouthed. I wore only pajama shorts and an old T-shirt. The night had turned cold. My arms were purple goose flesh, hair standing straight out as though I'd touched a live wire. 
Was it supposed to be this cold in the southern Caribbean? We had packed only shorts and swimmer suits. Call the hospital, I heard myself say to the boy. We need an ambulance. A man is having a heart attack. He might be dying. My voice cracked in the middle of that last, but I did not shout, and that was a, that was a near thing. Okay, okay, he said, I will, I will call. I turned and began to run back. He called after me. Don't be scared. I kept repeating that all the way back. David, don't be scared. Don't be frightened. I could see our window from the hall, from the walkway. No more than a light, no sign of motion inside. I looked there as I ran in the dark, moonless night, wondering idly if I would go running off the walkway into the pool or off the other edge into the marina to be crushed by one of the yachts swaying between the mooring posts. Frightened, David. Don't be frightened. Turning the page. That moment, I remembered the dream of Thursday morning. The dream, vision, whatever it was, it was a lesson, I realized, giving me clear instructions about how to help David now. I needed to help him wake up and die. All right, I thought. I understood what I was supposed to do. I buried my face in the crook of David's neck and held him close. His body was still warm. With my eyes shut, I spoke to him silently. I thought to him all the words, the reassurances and guidance I had given him in the dream three days before. David could hear every word. There was no question in my mind about that, and no doubt about it since, no more than I would doubt the fact that the sun came up in the morning. I see that, and I saw David in my mind's eye, listening, slowly calming, as I took his right hand in my left hand. Over and over again, I told David not to be afraid, to, to look around for a tunnel, to go through the tunnel toward the light. I visualized we two going through every moment of that two, Thursday morning lesson dream together. David silent and me doing all the talking, describing, soothing. Holding hands with David walking ahead of me, and yet I was the guide. I told David that he would be fine and that he need not worry about anyone here. I promised him that I would take care of his mother and his aunt, that I would take care of any concern he might have. He should not worry about anything here, I repeated, not even Koki, his beloved cat. I did ask him to return to guide his mother, aunt, and me when we died. After a while of saying all that, over and over, I felt a sense of peace. Still, I did not open my eyes and let go of him until his body suddenly became cool. At that moment, I sat up in the bed. I remember saying out loud, he's not here anymore. I looked up to the ceiling corner to the left as if I could see him. I could not, though I knew he was the, it, that was the direction he had taken. The room was crowded by then. A couple of people looked away when I finally spoke out loud. Maybe they thought I had become mentally unbalanced with grief. All became confusion then. A stream of people in and out of the room, our companions, the nurse and the policeman with the ambulance, the security guard, the island's medical examiner, and then more police. At some point, I was sitting by the side of the bed holding his arm. I covered him with a sheet and closed his eyes. Stu had done that, but it needed to be done again. A medic pulled the sheet off and asked if there was anything to tie his wrists. 
I gave him my sweater, and he tied David's wrists together with its sleeves, then lifted him to the stretcher, and and were starting to move toward the door when I asked Stu, shouldn't we go with him to the hospital? My voice was loud, my tone pleading. No one responded. They all looked away from me. Denial again, I realized. I began to cry as the medics took his body away to the island morgue. The crowd thinned in the small room. Our companions left me alone with a suggestion that I try to sleep. That was impossible. For one thing, the room was freezing cold. The tropical night had changed. The temperature dropped sharply. Since I could find no blankets anywhere in the room's closets or bureaus, I put on more clothes and David's windbreaker. Sleepless, I sat out on the veranda in the dark. I was too stunned to think or feel. By then, it was about four in the morning. The sky was dense with stars. A gray kitten appeared on the second-floor walkway and jumped onto my lap, rolled me, rolled onto his back, and purred at me expectantly. The kitten stayed on my lap for quite a while, being stroked and tolerating the occasional tear that fell onto his fur. I was grateful for the company. When he finally jumped down and strolled away, I went back inside and tried for sleep, hopeless. I felt a strange mixture of emotions, grief, of course, Grief so sharp I was in physical shock, though I didn't know that yet. But I also felt intense gratitude for being allowed to help David die. Most of the time until dawn was spent on my knees, reminding David of what he needed to do, talking silently to whomever might be listening about what a wonderful person David was, and thanking God for showing me how to help him die. The next morning, the hotel guests were complaining of the awful heat that kept them awake, I was startled. It was freezing cold all night, I said. They looked away. Stu offered Valium, which I declined. The yacht sailed without me, of course. I took photos and wrote everything down for David's mother and his Aunt Mary. They would have a hard time enough taking in the reality of David's death. Telling them about the dream and all the other details might help. In fact, it did help, both of them and an old friend of David's who flew in from Paris for the memorial service. The experience has shaped my life in many ways. Whenever I think of it, I am filled with gratitude that I was given the opportunity to help David die peacefully. If you would like to hear this show again or any other of our programs, please visit our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about IONS, please check out our ions.org. There will be information on that site about our upcoming Labor Day weekend conference on NDEs, Health and Healing in Newport Beach, California, from August 28th through the 31st. So save those dates, and thanks for listening.